This episode of New Politics was released on the 4th of February, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the explosive new evidence coming out of the Robo-Debt Royal Commission and the Treasurer wants to redefine capitalism so it works in the interests of people, but how easy will it be? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, hopeless romantic. And for our Patreon subscribers, we've got a bonus episode coming out this week. We've actually been asked quite a few times about when the Coalition will be returning to office. We actually think that it might be a long, long time, but let's not spoil the fun for you. And we'll send out the link to you when it becomes available. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au. And all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. There's been a lot of explosive evidence to come out from the Robo-Debt Royal Commission this week with ministers, political staffers and public servants all coming in to show how inept the entire scheme was, how corrupt the scheme was and how they all engaged in deception of the worst kind, where a totally illegal system was created and instigated by the previous government in the hope that nobody would ever find out. Now, in some of our previous New Politics podcasts, we suggested that if the truth ever came out about robo-debt, it would be enough to bring down the Liberal National Government. Well, it's too late for that. They've already brought themselves down in the 2022 federal election. But most of this evidence coming out of this Royal Commission is just so unbelievable that ministers could be so corrupt and so negligent, public servants could be so incompetent and political staffers could be so ignorant and dense. The Royal Commission is not a court of law, so it can't actually prosecute anyone, but some punitive measures need to be taken, even if it is to make sure that these people can never again serve in public life ever again. That's how bad all of this is. I suspect that the Royal Commission will recommend charges be laid against various individuals. Now, who that is at this point, I don't want to say, and I don't want to jeopardise any recommendations or findings of the Royal Commission by discussing things that could be seen as prejudicing. I certainly hope they do recommend charges to some of them. It would then, of course, be up to the Department of Public Prosecutions or the Australian Federal Police, depending on which charges are recommended, to follow through with that. And they may not. One of the things that became apparent over the life of the last government is that they really didn't care about precedent. They didn't care about procedure. They didn't care about the traditions that parliament has always run under if it wasn't written down. And even then they tried to subvert the writing. And one of the key functions of the public service is free, fair, frank, and fearless advice to the government of the time. All governments try and bring in things that are not within their constitutional powers or are illegal for some reason, sometimes blatantly illegal like robo-debt. Sometimes it's more of a case of, well, the law won't allow you to do this because of reason X and reason Y. Now, the public service not only has to give this advice, 
the minister has to take this advice uh, unless there's a very good reason not to. Traditionally, a public service cannot give partisan advice. You might be a lifelong Liberal voter as a senior public service working with a Labor government. You have to treat the Labor government exactly the same as you would the Liberal government and vice versa too. You can't favour one side over the other. And for 90 years or so, that's how it happened here. We had some very, very fine public servants who not only held the government to account but helped the governments do the very best they could. Of course, not every single piece of policy has been perfect. Not every single idea that shouldn't have floated got stopped. But that balance of the minister or the cabinet suggests this is the policy. The public service then bring that policy through. That stopped. It became not only the government coming up with the policy, but the government railroading or steamrolling the public service so that illegal and immoral and unethical policy happened. Now, the public servants had a few courses of action. They could have resigned and publicly resigned and said, I'm resigning because they want us to bring in this horrible policy. They could have just point blank refused to do it. It looks like some of them went in, if not enthusiastically, some quite apathetically. One of the senior public servants said that it didn't really bother her, which I just found appalling. You're running this department. There are long-term implications from here. But the very senior public servants are just as culpable as the two ministers involved, those being, of course, Scott Morrison and Alan Tudge. Alan Tudge has been somehow even more of a train wreck than Scott Morrison was in terms of his testimony. Well, it's almost been a train wreck of train wrecks, you know, quite frankly, but not many people are going to watch the proceedings from the Royal Commission or all day long and think that it's riveting television, but it's got absolutely everything in there. It's got drama, it's got comedy, tragic comedy, there are heroes and villains, and it's not likely to have a happy ending unless all the villains do go to jail. But I think it does give an interesting insight into the operations of government, particularly the Morrison government, which I think that it should rate as one of the worst that we've ever had in Australia. And David, before you mentioned about public servants resigning or government ministers resigning at that particular time and it, when it became evident that robo-debt was illegal, but in 2017, there was an opportunity for the government to come clean about robo-debt when those doubts were first raised about its legality. Now, that, of course, would have been difficult for a government to do. They would have had to admit their errors and their mistakes, but that probably would have been far more preferable to what's happening now. Instead, they chose to double down and they decided to shut down the story in the words of the Minister for Social Services at the time, Alan Tudge. Here's the senior media advisor at the time, Rachel Miller, explaining what the process was. I developed a crisis media strategy at the request of the Minister. Uh, I would have done it anyway, but that's what we did. Uh, He was very firm with me that I needed to shut this story down. Can I pause you there? Were you in contact with the minister while he was on leave? Yes. Okay. This is email contact? Email contact, yes. Right. I, the minister became quickly aware that the prime minister was unhappy with, you know, the, the, the sort of escalating media issue around this. Um, but that media strategy uh, was quite comprehensive that I developed in January to shut down the story. And that involved, you know, placing stories with you know, the more friendly media, the right-wing media, about how the coalition was actually catching people who were cheating the welfare system. 
And that media, including the likes of A Current Affair or um, others, has a lot more reach. The, the commercial television programs, uh, the you you know, 2GB, radio, that type of thing, has a lot more reach. So actually the message that was getting to people on the ground was that the coalition is cracking down on welfare cheats, whereas in the kind of, you know, left-wing Canberra circles, it appeared to be quite a crisis. Um, but we were getting feedback from the Prime Minister's office that actually this was playing quite well in, in you know, marginal seats, Western Sydney, that type of thing. Which was playing quite well? Well, the, the narrative of um, that robo-debt was actually playing quite well in terms of people actually supported it and were supportive of the notion of the government cracking down on anybody who was cheating the welfare system. Instead of resolving the problem, which is what you'd expect a government to do, they let the problem continue. They use spin and propaganda to try and close down the debate. In normal circumstances, they might have gotten away with this, but it was a case of too many people being affected by robo-debt and there was nowhere for the coalition government to hide. There were a lot of people and their life because of it. One of the slimy things Alan Tudge says is that, oh, he was asked about a specific case and he said, oh, we, we don't know the full circumstances and these things have complex roots, trying to get himself out of any responsibility. And sure, he's not wrong in that there were many people who didn't kill themselves, but that's really not the point. The point is, is that this was a major factor and probably and definitely the final factor in whatever else was going in their life and could have been easily avoided by a more humane and a more sensible policy. The way they calculated the debt was just, I can't even come up with an appropriate word. It was just wrong. It made no sense. It put people into a lot more debt than they would have been in even if they had owed anything. And it, it caused a lot of unnecessary hardship. The ministers who thought of it, who administered it, and the public servants who refused to really deal with it in any real way need to be held accountable for. Well, the big issue at the moment within the Royal Commission is one of legality and trying to find out where the legal validation and verification for the robo-debt scheme actually came from. And might be a case where all of those ex-senior ministers are now going through that process of plausible deniability, and, and it's just really difficult to accept that no one checked the legality of robo-debt. Now, it might be a case where the government of the day, they just desperately wanted the scheme to proceed for a wide range of other political reasons. It had that narrative of welfare fraud, blaming welfare cheats and bludgers, and that usually runs very well in the right-wing media. There was that narrative that they wanted to blame the previous Labor government between 2010 and 2013 for these overpayments occurring, even though there's absolutely no evidence to support this claim. And there wasn't actually very much evidence to support anything that Alan Tudge uh, was saying during the Royal Commission hearing, especially when only 0.1% of all the cases that were identified were actually caused by fraud. And at that time in 2017, when all of these problems started being made public, the media was very quick to run with all of those pro-coalition stories. But at the moment, they're keeping a little bit quiet about this. And as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the biggest scandals ever in Australia's political history. But the Media's reporting on the Royal Commission has actually been quite scarce, and especially when you compare it to the reporting on the Trade Union Royal Commission back in 2014. Mm. And at the moment, it's all pretty much lower-level reporting or reporting at a time when not many people are watching television. 
Last weekend on ABC24, there was not one reference to the robo-debt Royal Commission at all, but they did manage to have a crocodile on the loose story on Endless Loop. Uh, I saw that about 10 times on Saturday and Sunday, closely followed by a story about a monkey living in a jungle. And to be honest, I thought that that's where monkeys live. They live in a jungle, so (laughs) there's not much of a story there. And for a news outlet that needs to find news to fill up the 24 hours of each and every day, to me, that was a little bit strange. And just on Monday this week, admittedly, it wasn't such a big day for the Royal Commission, but it's still newsworthy. The ABC's 7pm news program, and that's the ABC's biggest rating program, the robo-debt story was aired on the 7pm news in Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, Queensland and the ACT, but it wasn't reported in New South Wales, Australia's biggest state. And and I realise that news headlines can't just report the news that you want to see or hear all the time, but this is a really strange omission. Now, there could be a reason for this. I don't know what it is. Independent media has been covering the events in greater detail. And, of course, on New Politics, we've been analysing the robo-debt scheme over the past couple of years. But there's a Guardian website. They've been reporting on the bigger details about the robo-debt Royal Commission. Rick Morton from the Saturday paper, he's been active on social media. The ABC does actually have a journalist in Brisbane covering the Royal Commission, but doesn't seem to be using him very often. And it's, it's for me, it's just very difficult to understand why this Royal Commission is not getting the coverage that it deserves, especially on the national broadcaster. I've said for years that the 24-hour news cycle has failed. It worked for Ted Turner, who made a lot of money out of it, probably worked for the owners of News Corp and Fairfax and and those who produce it. But in terms of it being an, an information source, it's no good. Stories don't filter through. And you get the same story again and again and again. As you said, the monkey living in the jungle and the lion escaped from the zoo. Because when there's nothing else happening, that's all they've got and they have to fill the content. Now there is something happening. They can use these other less substantial stories to not cover this very important Royal Commission. Now they may have many good reasons. They might be waiting. They don't want to wade through the evidence, the giving of the evidence. They're waiting for the the wrap-up. That's fine. But again, it doesn't help the 24-hour news. I'd have thought that here is basically free content six or eight or nine hours a day in which you could report it. You could then get your analysts in to talk about it for 15 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or even an hour. You can summarize it in the evening broadcasts and then go back to it the next day. For whatever reason, they haven't done this and it's quite wrong. Well, I think it is the case where the journalists are covering this story. They're actually out there in the field, but the news editors are deciding not to include yeah. their reports in, the, in their news broadcast. So that's the confusing thing. You've got all of these people working on the Royal Commission. You've got all of these journalists actually producing the stories, but yet they're deciding not to release them on their news broadcasts. And it must be so frustrating to those journalists who, who are out there putting in the copy, sitting through the upsetting testimony. The emotions to me, it seems, have gone from absolute despair through to rage, through to raging despair and despaired raging and everything in between. So to have your story pulled must just be devastating while you sit through this awful experience. And awful is relative, of course, because I don't know that any journalist 
had a Centrelink debt, it's none of my business if they did anyway. But having to listen to the experience of people can't be easy. And then to be told, oh, no, you've been bummed for monkeys in the jungle or a puppy story must just be heartbreaking. And it shows. I've said for years, Australia's got the worst press in the democratic world because its very best journalism is very good, but mostly it's mediocre and and awful. Uh, And again, that's due to publishers wanting mediocre and awful. And as we've discussed on previous episodes of New Policies, the main purpose of the Royal Commission is to make sure that this type of scheme can never happen again. But while we've got the current system of government with cabinet confidentiality and government archives only being released 20 years after decisions are made, it's actually going to be very hard to prevent this from ever happening again. And who knows what else was illegal that was performed by the coalition government over its nine years in office. And we know about all the rorts that were going on, Scott Morrison and his secret ministries and now robo-debt. And there's a lot of people that are implicated within all of this, and that includes three prime ministers. The scheme was hatched under Tony Abbott, implemented and accelerated under Malcolm Turnbull, continued under Scott Morrison, and he's the one that actually created the scheme as uh, social services minister. It also implicates three social services ministers, Scott Morrison, Christian Porter and Alan Tudge. So making sure that something like robo-debt never happens again, as good and as fantastic as that would be, for me, that just isn't satisfying enough. Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, Christian Porter, they're out of politics at the moment. Morrison is a political nobody. Alan Tudge is extremely damaged goods after this debacle and his behaviour during the affair that he had with staffer Rachel Miller. And I'm not sure what sort of punishment needs to be meted out to these people, but Someone needs to take responsibility and be punished for their responsibility for robo-debt, whether they're still in politics or not. Sometimes I think you don't want to put Scott Morrison into jail because he still gets free board, free food, free clothing. I think you should strip him of all pensions and entitlements, strip him of all assets and send him out to try and make it in a real world, in, in a real job. I think Christian Porter, uh, jail is the only solution for him. Alan Tudge, I think, to be honest, all three of them, given what we know so far, and given that this would still require a trial, but I think on balance of probabilities, jail terms for all of them wouldn't be inappropriate and not be allowed to stand for public office again. This would be the time to just do a quick uh, hello to the Shady Sukkar people who are avid listeners and there's another one there, but he's avoided a Royal Commission so far. The time may be coming. Hi, guys. And probably for some of those uh, senior public servants too who basically demonstrated dereliction of duty. Oh, I knew stuff was going to happen, but I couldn't be bothered because I had something else to do. And really, if they're guilty of what it seems they're guilty of, I think they need to be completely removed from their privilege That's the big punishment. Their lawyers may well argue, well, they're very public and prominent figures. They get punished every day that they go out. But people died. There may be a bit of dispute as to how many died, but there's no dispute that nobody did. People died as a direct result of this scheme. And I think that would send a message to the over-entitled, to the over-privileged, to the incompetent to the, I want the job because I want the job, not because I want to do anything. 
I'm not saying that people who have done well for themselves, people who've been educated at private schools, people who come from wealthier families shouldn't be allowed to run for parliament per se. But the parties and the voters need to ensure that whoever they bring in should be working for the best interests of the country. And Tudge Porter Morrison didn't do that. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has published a major article titled Capitalism After the Crises. It was first published in the monthly magazine and segments of it were republished in the Australian newspaper and the right-wing media had yet another field day. They described it as being too ambitious, that it will all end up in disaster. It's a case of the Treasurer being up himself and too arrogant with his suggestion that he might be able to redefine capitalism. The main gist of Jim Chalmers' ideas are to introduce values-based economics to the Australian community. This is not a new idea, and this is the basis of the theories and economics of Mariana Mazzucato. She's an Italian economist whose ideas are based on harnessing the dynamics of technological change, the role of the public sector in innovation, and broadening the spectrum of finance and economics so it closely aligns to human behaviour and human well-being. And just doesn't end up being another set of numbers and this sets up a series of exciting possibilities for the Australian economy but it's all been attacked by the usual suspects the Australian Daily Telegraph the Australian Financial Review and it's just following on from that conservative mantra that usually comes from these people they lack the imagination to understand what the future could look like they're failing to understand history they're failing to understand economies and their understanding of how economics develops and grows and in terms of the economic changes that are happening around the world australia has to adapt to new economic thinking otherwise it's just going to be left behind god forbid a treasurer actually stamped their own idea of capitalism on an economy that's never happened before oh except for john howard oh except bill hayden Oh, except for every treasurer since 1901 and all of them before then too. Of course the treasurer is going to put their own version of capitalism and, and try and shape their policy to match that as best as they can in a, in a complicated economy. And what I think Jim Chalmers was absolutely right with, capitalism is not an ends, it's a tool. And this is what Adam Smith says that the supporters of Adam Smith conveniently forget. 
capitalism is only good if the profits made or the capital acquired is used to improve society. It's no good to hoard money. It's no good to spend money on luxury items that are only enjoyed by a few people. It should be spread right throughout the community. It's a very capitalist idea to use the profits of private enterprise, to use the profits of industry and retail and all the other sectors to improve those for the majority of people. And it's not communism to do that. It's not even socialism to do that necessarily. And if people have access to that surplus, they work harder. It makes things better for society. One of the things we've noticed with the last nine years is the undermining of culture. And I mean culture from everything from young kids in the Western suburbs trying to do hip hop through to orchestras and opera societies finding that there's no money to perform anymore. It's time that we think about how do we manage unemployment, an incredibly inefficient waste of labour. And it's been bolted into the system for decades because it allegedly keeps prices down. I don't know why they're so frightened of people not earning enough to live on. And we see it in Britain at the moment, nurses having to go to food banks which is just appalling. Anyone doing a full-time job that is legal and ethical and and moral, which is 99.9% of all jobs, by the way, shouldn't need to work two jobs, shouldn't need rely on charity to get by. You should be able to live in frugal comfort, if you like, to quote Henry Bourne Higgins, on a decent wage. Not everybody wants to be a billionaire. The system's set up now that if you want to be a billionaire and you get the breaks and you're not excluded, blah, 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 you can become one. It's harder to be somebody who doesn't earn as much money but maybe puts in more to society. And that's where we need people. We need nurses. We need health professionals and allied health professionals. Well, we need all of those people. Yeah, we need artists. We need journalists. We need salespeople. We need builders. We need every trade. We need mechanic. On and on it goes. But it seems that we don't need people to live comfortably and without stress. And this goes back to the RoboDebt Royal Commission. Not only do we exclude people from doing a little bit better, we punish them for not, as if opportunity is something that everybody gets. And Chalmers' reforms will take a generation, but hopefully it'll last two or three generations like neoliberalism did. Now, this, of course, is a generalisation because there are some very good businesses in Australia, but I think generally Australian business thinking is quite backwards. It's still based on cost-cutting and cost-based recovery accounting. It's an economy that survives on resources and digging things up from the earth. Now, we've got a situation where Australia's got one of the least diverse economies in the world, and according to the World Complexity Index, Australia's ranked number 86, and it's way behind all of Eastern and Western Europe. It's way behind both North America and South America, and that's not to suggest that Australia's economy is on the verge of collapsing. Australia still does make most of its income through resources and mining, and that will continue to do so for some time. But if the Australian economy wants to be seen as a successful economy well into the future, well, it needs to start that diversification process now. And and Australia is also getting into that population zone where it can start having economies of scale in a wide range of industries, including technology. But the business leaders who have come out and criticised Jim Chalmers don't want to be part of this new economic thinking because it is a challenge to their wealth base and it's, it is a challenge to 
doing the things that they've been doing for the past 50 or 60 years, they're far too conservative both business-wise and in a political sense as well, but they will have to adapt if they want to be part of the future. Those that don't follow the strands of history get left behind. And a lot of thinking in Australia is on the wrong side of history at the moment. Australia has had some amazing, agile, innovative businesses, but they either don't last or they go overseas or they become big, conservative, slow-moving businesses. (laughs) And it's a shame. They talk about the brain drain and a lot of brilliant young Australians moved overseas. Look at the number of Australian actors in Hollywood, for example. Now, to be a Hugh Jackman or a Kate Blanchett or a Russell Crowe, does require some element of winning the lottery. But that's the nature of that profession. That's not to disparage their hard work and their talent and their their abilities. And I think they'd agree with me that luck played a large part and, you know, they essentially won the lottery. A lot of Australian actors went over because they saw more of an opportunity over there than here. That earlier generation of Australian actors, Jack Thompson, Brian Brown, and many, many others who could stay here and make a good and relatively lucrative career from acting and from directing, from being makeup, from being all of that, special effects, set design, directing. We're losing that. That's just one industry. The way that we've treated science over the last few years, scientists are just pouring overseas. I don't want to get into humanities where I think there's 12 or 15 full-time writers of novels in Australia, which is tiny. Might be a bit more than that, but it's it's a tiny, tiny amount of people who are writing novels. Well, I'd actually love to see a novel based around the robo-debt scheme. I suspect it will happen, and a, and a mini-series. But my point is, is that out of important future-proof industries, Australians are flocking overseas, as far as we can tell. And what's left here, we're losing important cultural voices, we're losing important intellectual voices, we're losing important technological and scientific voices. We should be trying to keep them. And a modern agile economy would put in the encouragement for them to stay rather than to go, not just government funding, through all kinds of measures. Well, I guess that's one thing that Jim Chalmers is trying to do Mm. with all of this. And his essay is a blueprint for what he wants to achieve as treasurer. And for people who do want to read the essay, it's available at themonthly.com. But the article itself, it's ambitious. He wants to provide cleaner and cheaper energy, put an emphasis on training and technology, more business investment, a focus on energy policy, skills and education, housing, and all under the banner of economic institutions needing to renew and restructure. Here's a little bit of what he had to say during the week. Well, my essay is all about how we strengthen our economy and strengthen our institutions in a way that strengthens our society and strengthens our democracy. And it differs from the approach taken over the last decade or so, uh, because I think for the best part of a decade, we've been pretending as a country that we have to choose between our economic objectives and our social objectives. And in the process, we haven't done a great job of satisfying either set of objectives. And so what this tries to do is to say that we would be much better off if we had the public sector and the private sector working together in the service of our national economic goals uh, in a way that modernises our economy and modernises our institutions and strengthens our democracy uh, so that we can rebuild faith uh, that our approach to the economy brings with it uh, a whole range of other benefits too. 
The areas that I identify, which I think will be really the defining challenges in our economic policy for the rest of the decade, are how do we get cleaner and cheaper energy into the system? Uh, how do we teach and train our people so that technology works in their favour and not against them? And how do we get investment and capital flowing into the areas that we know will strengthen our economy and make it more productive, but most importantly, create more opportunities for more people in more parts of Australia? And so where that matters most is obviously in energy policy, but also the way we approach skills and training, uh, the way that we bring investors around the table to deal with challenges like in housing, uh, like in data and digital, some of these other areas where we know that we have these massive opportunities. And the reason I've come at it in the way that I have is I think the 2020s will be a defining decade uh, in the story of our country. Uh, and I think we have an opportunity here to neatly line up uh, our values, our priorities and our objectives, not just in our economy, but in our society. For too long, those values and objectives have been in collision with each other rather than in, in alignment with each other. And I want to change that. Now, I think that this essay could end up being one of those signature essays that defines a political leader after Kevin Rudd's Dietrich Bonhoeffer article published in 2006, and that was actually before he became Prime Minister. But essentially, Jim Chalmers is starting off a conversation about economic history, economic ideas, sociology, world history. There's a great deal of politics in this essay as well, where he bags the previous coalition government for wasting almost a decade in office, doing nothing except for ridiculing good ideas and trying to restart neoliberalism again in Australia after it had reached its end point everywhere else. But there's no question that the Australian economy needs to renovate, reform and reinvigorate itself. It's over 40 years since the onset of neoliberalism all around the world. And we can see that COVID was the sharp endpoint to neoliberalism. And I'm not suggesting that it's all going to be all weird and revolutionary from now on, but effectively COVID gave the world a defining point where economies and economic thinking had to change. And we've talked about this on New Politics before, David. Mm. And this is the direction that Australia does need to go in, whether the Conservatives like it or not. But all we've had from the Liberal Party is the usual stuff, ridicule, laughter, admonishing Jim Chalmers for claiming that he's trying to remake capitalism or trying to introduce this idea of values-based economics. Susan Lay has been leading the charge on this, and that's what they're going to do. There's no end to this sort of stuff coming in from the Liberal Party. But I think that this endless negativity is going to destroy the Liberal Party. They're doing this on the voice to Parliament. It's a lot of hot air and blustering. And if you're dealing yourself out of the picture now and deciding that as a political party, you're not going to provide any solutions, well, you're definitely not going to be part of the future either. And that's what I was saying before. You find yourself on the wrong end of history. Now, they're protected, I guess, by a a media that agrees with them for the most part. And so their ideas are presented as the good ones and, you know, how dare this irresponsible Jim Chalmers redefine capitalism in such a way that really when you boil all the arguments down, it gets that to that our bosses will get a bit less money maybe. I mean, the media work on what are now outdated technologies too. Paper, which isn't really outdated, but people aren't buying newspapers and magazines free-to-air broadcast, which less and less people are watching as people move to streaming sites and that type of thing. And whenever there's discussion on these things that traditional media try and maybe adapt kind of perhaps, and of course 
broadcast TV is 60 or 70 years old. Radio is 80 or 90 years old, 100 years old. That's a long time to be running a business, but all technologies eventually come to an end or get superseded. Maybe not all technologies, some technologies, or they get improved. I would have thought smart business would have been acknowledging this. Now, whether Jim Chalmers succeeds or not, at least he's got good communications on his side, as Paul Keating had when he was treasurer in the 1980s. But whether he can succeed or not is another matter. There are major challenges in the Australian economy that will take some time to reform. And the position of treasurer is not a position where you just get brandy points for trying or for the effort that you put into it. You have to make it all work. But still, good economic ideas that work do need to be implemented But this is also, for me, as far as I'm concerned, this is the right time for these economic ideas to be implemented. It will take good economic management, good political management as well, and probably some luck as well. But as Napoleon said, give me generals that have the luck as well as the skill. But I think that it's best for Jim Chalmers and the Labor government to just get on with whatever they need to get on with. The Liberal Party is dealing themselves out of the picture and are due for a long stint in opposition. So it's best for the Labor government to prepare for some deep-seated reforms that may take a while to set in place, but at least they do have time on their hands. It will also cost them political capital, but that's what you use your political capital on, important improving reform. You don't use it on praising pedophiles when they die, etc. Or people who encourage pedophilia, as if there's a difference. But certainly it's worth the Labor Party trying these reforms. And there may be a little bit of short-term pain, but as long as it's short-term pain and people start to see how well this is working, provided it is working, of course, people will fall in behind and, and support and allow the work to continue. And Hopefully that's what happens, that the reforms he does are good, that they're competent, that they improve things, and that people who have more or less stopped listening to the mainstream media anyway continue to not listen to them and let the reforms go in and do their thing. And hopefully we get a better Australia out of it. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.